A number of years ago, I heard about a book that apparently, it was a rumour I heard about this book that was called Slim for Him. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of that book before. It, it's apparently a Christian weight loss book. So the him is Jesus. And I thought, that can't be true, surely. That sounds crazy. And so I, I did what you do to uh, confirm or deny the facts. I googled it. And it is true. You can still buy it. On, on Amazon, apparently. But when I googled it, the second search result was for a website called awfullibrarybooks.net and it was listed in, in their, their list. And that's not even a Christian website and they knew there was something wrong with that, with that book, Slim for Him. Now, that's so bad that it's, it's kind of funny. Um, but unfortunately, bad teaching about Jesus is not rare and usually it's not funny. And it really does have a big impact. I was chatting with someone after church just this morning about um, the massive impact he's seen in Africa about bad teaching, from bad teaching about Jesus. It makes a huge impact and it affects how we live. And so does right teaching about Jesus, but in a positive sense. And that's what this chapter really is about. It shows us both the negative and the positive of how important right teaching about Jesus is and the right living that should flow from that. That true faith in Jesus should be like a well that flows up into our lives and and nourishes and feeds the good life that should come from that, the godly life that God wants us to have. That's what this chapter is about, and we're going to dive into it now. So if you begin with me in verse 1, the first thing that we see is the broken moral compass of false teachers, the false teachers and their broken moral compass. Much of Paul's letter to his young protege, Timothy, is about correcting and silencing false teachers. It's where he starts in chapter 1, it's where he finishes in chapter 6, and here in chapter 4, we learn that Timothy should not be at all surprised that he is facing this problem of false teachers because the Spirit clearly says that that's what will happen. Have a look at verse 1 with me. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and and things taught by demons. So Paul's saying that, that false teachers are not an unusual problem that just you are facing, Timothy. Jesus himself had prophesied that this would be the mark of the times that we now live in. When Jesus has come and the message of salvation through Jesus is spreading throughout the world, during this time, there will be opposition to that message. It comes from humans, but it's the teaching of demons, we are told. And we should expect that. The message of Jesus is that God has won over the spiritual forces of evil, the devil and his demons that tried to turn humanity against God and succeeded, but God has found a way to win us back to himself, to save us, to took the penalty that we should have had to take for that at massive cost to himself in the death of his son, Jesus. That is the victory that God has won. And so, of course, the devil and the spiritual forces of evil want to corrupt that message. And this corruption, this corrupted teaching is not just an academic thing. It leads to a corrupted life. 
And these false teachers that Paul is writing to Timothy about are corrupted in both of those areas, in life and in, in, in teaching. They've abandoned the faith to follow the teaching of demons, and that involves a corruption of their hearts and their lives. So if you have a look in verse, verse 2, they are hypocrites. They're, you know, what a hypocrite is, they're putting on an appearance that looks good on the outside, but it's fake. And so they've got this disconnect between what people see on the outside and what's actually going on on the inside. Their inside doesn't match their outside. And that is always a dangerous place to be. That's religious hypocrisy. And in the process, we're told, their consciences have become seared as with a hot iron. And I talked about this idea a few weeks ago. Uh, a seared conscience is the opposite of a, of a healthy conscience, a good conscience that we saw back in chapter 1. A good conscience is a conscience that works, it, it's healthy, it functions the way that it should. In particular, it's a conscience that is, that is formed and, and guided by the teaching of Jesus, by the message of Jesus. That shapes what we understand is right and wrong and, and, it, and it speaks to us. A seared conscience is the opposite of that. It's like a scar from a bad burn. I don't know if you've ever had a bad burn, but if you have, you'll know what that does to your skin. It doesn't leave your skin healthy at all. It's scarred and lumpy, and, 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 and a conscience that has been seared, the conscience of these false teachers, is like that. It's been seared with a hot iron, and so it leaves this kind of hardened layer over their conscience, and so their conscience doesn't work the way that it should. It doesn't prick them the way that it should. You know, you, you go against your conscience, you go against what you know is right often enough. After a while, it doesn't bother you anymore. You don't feel it anymore. And your ability to determine what is right and wrong becomes diminished. That's a seared conscience. And that's what these false teachers were like. They followed corrupted teaching, which corrupts their hearts. And now they have a seared conscience. And to kind of shift that, that metaphor slightly, what that produces is a broken moral compass. You know, they still make moral demands, we're going to see in a moment, but they're moral demands that are actually against the things that God intends. They're the wrong things that they're demanding. And in this case, what they're demanding is in the form of what's called asceticism. I don't know if you've heard that word before, it's kind of hard to say, maybe you should practice asceticism no well done asceticism is a view of the world that thinks that physical things are bad you know sex food pleasure comfort those things are bad the only thing good according to asceticism are things that are, that are spiritual and so the ultimate aim is to try and separate yourself from anything that might cause you to be contaminated by those physical things any enjoyment of the physical world. And unfortunately, this kind of idea and this kind of teaching has infiltrated uh, Christian thinking at various times in history. And it seems like something like that was going on when Paul was writing this letter to Timothy. These false teachers were forbidding marriage and ordering people to not eat certain foods. These are classic examples of asceticism. And they demand this, we're told, because they have abandoned the truth. Because the truth is, as Paul reminds us in verse 4, 
that God is the creator of everything. There's not this separation between the, the, the spiritual and the physical as if one is good and the other is bad. When God made the world, remember what he said? He looked at what he'd made and he said, it is good. Yeah. The physical world that God has made, he called it good. And so nothing that God has made and called good should be rejected as if it's bad. If we receive it, thanking God for it, for providing this good thing for us. It's a massive affirmation of the goodness of physical things, the goodness of the physical world. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that sometimes we we can't corrupt and misuse the good things that God gives us. So sexual immorality is a misuse of sex, which God created for a good purpose within marriage between a man and a woman. Gluttony and drunkenness is a misuse of food and drink, which God made for our nourishment. Those Um, misuses of those things those things are wrong but can you see how the false teachers have kind of got the wrong thing wrong in what they are forbidding they're forbidding marriage and eating certain foods as if those things are the problem and so they've got these strong moral demands that they're making of people but it's the wrong things that they're insisting on because they're starting in the wrong place they've abandoned the truth and they've got corrupted consciences and so they're heading in the wrong direction they've their moral compass is broken. It, it, it kind of reminds me of the, the Pharisees that Jesus used to argue with. You know, one time he, he was point, pointing out to them that they would force people to donate even a tenth of the herbs in their garden. You know, that specific. But then they wouldn't lift a finger to actually help people who were in need. And they couldn't see that there was something wrong with that. That's like what these false teachers are doing. They're making these strong legalistic rules as if that's what matters. And it undermines the very message of the gospel. And it doesn't actually help when it comes to real godliness. Paul says in Colossians, these rules lack any value in actually stopping the things that God wants us to stay away from. Like we know that forced celibacy doesn't mean the same thing as as sexual morality and sexual purity. In fact, sometimes it can be unhelpful in that regard. And sadly, I I know people who put high moral value on mastering the things of the body. You know, things like what what they eat, what they, you know, how they sleep, um, how they exercise, as if those are the things that really matter and kind of put a moral category on that. But then they have these gaping holes in the things that God actually cares about. It's it's no good being careful about what you eat while committing sexual immorality. And to not be able to see the difference there is, is a problem. This is where corrupted teaching leads to corrupted living. Disconnected from its root in the gospel of Jesus, these false teachers have a broken moral compass. And this is what... Paul wants Timothy to point out to to people so that they don't get led astray. Not just on those particular issues, on, on, on marriage and food, but the way that wrong teaching leads to wrong living. This, we're told in verse 6, is what will make Timothy a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished on the gospel and trained for godliness. 
That's what he goes on, as I said, to talk about in, in, from verse 6, where, where he talks about the, the best kind of nourishment and the best kind of training. Let me read verse, from verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So do you hear that he's using the language of nourishment and training? But he's not talking about food and exercise. He's talking about being nourished on the truths of the faith. That's the diet that will nourish Timothy and the people that he leads, and trained for godliness. As Peter pointed out, verse 8 is kind of one of those catchphrases where sometimes people just quote half the verse as like the motto for, say, a Christian exercise program. Physical training is of some value. Great, so let's go for a run. And I'm all for that. But that's not, as Pete said, is, is not the point that he's making. The point is the second half of the verse but godliness has value both for this, for this life and the life to come. You know, as I was thinking about this, I, I recall that I grew up in a family that cared about healthy eating and exercise. Yet my, my mum was way ahead of the times when it comes to healthy eating. You know, she, was, she was into kind of not eating processed food way before that was a trendy thing. I remember at school at the recess I'd open my lunchbox and all my friends are pulling out packets of chips and I'd get a, a stick of celery and an apple. And I was like, yeah, thanks, Mum. I'm, I'm sure it was good for me, but try telling that to an eight-year-old. Good food and exercise is of some value. It's good to look after what God has given us, including our physical bodies. But however fit and healthy we are now, that's going to make absolutely zero difference in a thousand years' time. You know, do you think you will care how fast you could run or how, how much weight you can lift or how good you look in lycra when we are in God's new creation? We're going to get new physical bodies that will make even the best Olympic athletes seem broken down and weak. What we will care about in a thousand years' time and, and more, and what we will rejoice in for eternity, is the godliness that God is working in our lives now. As we are nourished in the gospel of Jesus and the work of God's spirit makes us more like Jesus, that's something worth celebrating. That's something worth thanking God for. And we will praise God for that forever. And that's worth putting effort into and working hard for. Like an athlete who trains hard for the physical body, we should be working hard to let the gospel train us for godliness. And the other thing, as he continues in that same paragraph, that is worth working hard for, is to see other people saved alongside us and celebrating in eternity with us. Saved by Jesus, that also has eternal value, clearly. Let me read verse 10. That is why we labour and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all people, 
and especially of those who believe. You see how Paul carries that training hard mentality, labouring and striving like an athlete training for some big event. But the goal that he's striving for is to see other people saved. His salvation, he says, is open to everyone. God is the saviour of all people. But we can only receive it through trusting Jesus. And Paul took that seriously. That's what made him work tirelessly, labouring and striving. He saw how wide God's love is. And he knew that people need to know about that and to put their trust in Jesus. And so he devoted his life to it. As I said, I know people who have devoted their lives to physical training. Getting up early, pounding the pavement, going to the gym, doing all the things. And some of them are very good at what they do. But doesn't that seem trivial compared to devoting our lives to things that matter for eternity? The eternal salvation of others. Becoming more like Jesus ourselves. And so it makes me wonder, what is it that we are pouring our energies into? Our effort, our hard work, our early mornings, our late nights, our tired bodies. Is it for things that will matter in eternity? And just in case we haven't quite got it yet, the rest of the chapter really drives home for us what it is that really matters. Two things. Faith and godliness, our life and what we believe. The first thing he goes on in verse 12 is the example of a life of godliness. Like with verse 8, verse 12, sometimes I hear quoted just half the verse. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. As if Paul is encouraging Timothy and, and young pastors to stand up for themselves And not get pushed around. But how do you not let other people look down on you because you're young? Well, the rest of the verse tells us. Not by standing up for yourself, but by the example of your character. Look at verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. See, he's urging Timothy to live with a kind of Christian um, maturity that goes beyond his years, that belies his youth, so to speak. His godliness and the example that that gives for everyone, young or old, that's what matters, how he lives his life. And then he goes on in verse 13 to talk about the other half of the equation, about, about his faith, his teaching what he should devote his life and energy to doing. And those three things in verse 13 kind of go together as one. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, which, as Pete said, could better be exhorting or or urging, and to teaching. This is the kind of the foundational thing that Timothy must devote himself to. And as I said, they kind of belong together as one, that this is about upholding the message of Jesus, reading the scriptures, and from that teaching the message of Jesus and and urging and exhorting and encouraging people to trust and to live 
that. And, and I wonder if I could just take a, a moment detour perhaps to talk about the, the first of those, the, the reading bit, the, the reading of scriptures. You see how important just reading the Bible is? You know, whether we're doing it at home or in church, but this is particularly talking about in church. When we read the Bible in church, it is a vital part of us sitting under God's word together. And I wonder if we appreciate that in that moment in church when it's read or if we kind of tune out for that bit. You know, occasionally I've, I've heard service leaders in church and, and not here, thankfully, not this church, but uh, speak about the Bible reading when they introduce it in a way that kind of downplays the significance of what's happening there. You know, so-and-so is going to come and read the Bible and, and then Jim's going to bring God's word to us. No, we are hearing God's word when the Bible is being read. And the teaching and the exhortations that follow, they're, they're a part of that. So we should want to make sure, shouldn't we, that, that, that the Bible readings in church are done as well as possible so that we don't tune out for that bit when it's being read and so that it's read in a way that doesn't confuse the meaning and great job today, ladies. And, and in fact, this afternoon, we, we, from today, we've, we've begun gathering a team, our Bible readers into a team so that they can train and encourage and equip each other to do that as well as possible, because it is such a precious part of, of our time together in church. And so please pray for our Bible readers. But I've, that was a bit of an aside, I'm, I'll get back on track. Because this is all about making sure that Timothy is devoting himself to the message of Jesus, that that should be the, the foundation of his ministry. This is what he must guard and teach and defend. This is what he must devote himself to. Although, interestingly, do you see, as he continues down into verse 15, he's not expected to be the finished product, completely perfect. He needs to set an example in his life. He needs to be teaching what is right. But in these things, he should be making progress. And I have to say that's encouraging to hear, that the expectation is not perfection, but progress. But at the same time, that's a challenge, Right? Whether we're teaching others or not, we must be progressing. We must be moving ahead in the right direction. I mean, it just occurs to me that that classic old story of being a Christian is like riding a bike. You've got to keep moving so that you don't fall off. That kind of speaks to this, right? There are no save points in the Christian life where you kind of go, oh, well, I've learned enough now. I've got to a certain, you know, behaviour status right now my, my godliness is under control that's saved and locked in and i can just cruise from from here on no we must keep going we must keep progressing both in our godliness and in what we believe keep trusting to the end which brings us to the last verse verse 16 which really sums it all up i think just in case we haven't quite Got it yet? I think this verse makes it really clear. Verse 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is one of those classic memory verse type of verses. For years, I had this verse printed and stuck on the bottom of my computer monitor, so I saw it every day. And then I had it inside my wallet, so every time I opened my wallet, I saw it there. And then I lost my wallet, but it's kind of well and truly etched into my mind after many years. It is such a helpful verse, not just for pastors. 
It's particularly aimed at people who teach others, but it is good for all of us. The two things that matter, life and doctrine, how we live and what we believe. And do you notice that they're the very same things that the false teachers had corrupted and abandoned at the start of the chapter? The true message of Jesus and the life of godliness. Those are the things that we must pay close attention to. And it's something that we need to persevere in. Persevere in them, it says. Because real saving faith keeps going to the end. You know, like the marathon runner who's halfway through the race and there are still hills ahead, we must expect that the life of faith and the life of godliness requires perseverance. That the perseverance of an athlete but for things that actually matter for eternity. And so if I could finish by, I guess, restating what I've already said, are you devoting your energies to these things that matter? What you believe and how you live. As I think about what you believe, I, I sometimes tell my kids, we constantly hear messages from the world around us what we should believe, what we should value. We hear that every day and we can't avoid it. We hear it from friends, we hear it in the news, we hear it in social media, we hear it everywhere. We can't escape that, we can't take ourselves out of the world. But are we making sure that we are also constantly hearing the message of Jesus in the Bible so that the gospel is shaping what we hear from the world around us rather than the other way around. That's paying careful attention to what we believe. And as we do that, are we also paying a careful attention and watching closely our life to make sure that our life matches the faith that we claim? Are we letting a healthy, gospel-shaped conscience go to work on our hearts and our lives so that we don't give ourselves a pass on things that we shouldn't? But instead, we are constantly changing our lives towards the godliness that God wants for us. That's the life of someone who will persevere to the end. Let me pray that we will do exactly that. Heavenly Father, it is so simple as we think about it that that we must watch our lives and our doctrine, that we must pay close attention to what we believe about Jesus and to hold firmly to that, and to the life of faith that flows out of that. It's simple. And yet living it is not always simple. Father, you know the challenges that we face uh, both on both of those counts, the messaging that we hear that contradicts that, as well as the temptations that we feel both from the world outside of us and the hearts within us. And so, Father, we ask that you will, by your Spirit, enable us to uh, know the depth of your love so that we cling to it all the more dearly. And from that, that it will flow out into the kind of life that is exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit and the kind of godliness that you would have us live. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.